It's okay. I go to counseling. I'm fine. I promise. I'm fine. Welcome to RUF, everybody. <laughs> Great lead-in on that one. Everybody's like, man, oh, went those 0 and 100 real quick there. Um, yeah, my name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Uh, I'm super glad to see you. I know there are a lot of things that you could be doing with your time, and I'm glad that you took some time to be here with us today. Uh, and one of the things I just wanted to highlight, we already talked about the Bible studies, but I just wanted to point out the people that are leading them, have them stand up real quick. So if freshman Bible study leaders, will you stand up real quick? Abby and Joel. Yeah! So if you're, if you're a freshman and you're looking for a way to get connected, because it's really hard to get connected during COVID tide, as this season has come to be called, uh, you should talk to these people. It's Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock, really great Bible study. Thanks. You can have a seat. Um, Schlin, where you at? Uh, Schlin is leading our women's Bible study. Yeah. Um, that's at 8 p.m. at her house. Talk to her. She can get you there. Uh, that's really important. It's a good one to go to. They always have some, uh, like, homemade snacks, which is pretty cool. It's a good time. Uh, and then the men's study, Justin, up there. My dude Justin and I are leading the men's study. It's at his house. It's at 5.30 on Wednesdays going through First Timothy. Uh, we occasionally have donuts. So if you're a guy, I'd love for you to join us for that. Uh, but at RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. What does that mean? That means that we believe that God's grace is central to life. That it's the, the most important thing that you need to know about. You need to know about God's grace to you in Jesus. And each semester we go through a sermon series, and this semester we are going through one called The Storyteller. Uh, we're going through the parables of Jesus. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, the parables, what they are, are they're just stories with a point. Um, Jesus was a teacher, among many other things, and he would uh, often tell stories that would kind of illustrate a point, just like many of your teachers, I'm sure, do. Uh, but the thing that's different about Jesus' stories is that they oftentimes, uh, stories that teachers tell, they work to kind of like try to clarify something that was a little bit foggy. Uh, but Jesus' stories actually work uh, backwards. They kind of work the opposite way sometimes. Uh, what I mean by that is that they often confront us with our misunderstanding more than they make, like, they firm up our understanding. So they're stories that sometimes they're just meant to drop a bomb on us and just confront us with the fact that we don't get it as much as we think. And our story tonight is one such story. Tonight we have a short and pretty direct story. Um, it's a story with an ending uh, that might leave us feeling a bit insecure. And so one thing that's super important when we're thinking about parables, as Jason said last week, is that context is super important when you're considering parables. So the context of the gospel that we find the parable in is super important if we're thinking about uh, what the meaning of the parable is. So just to kind of set the stage for us on this one, uh, our parable tonight is in Luke chapter 12. Uh, and at this point in the story of Luke, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified eventually. Um, but he's been doing ministry in Galilee, which is kind of the modern-day northern part of Palestine. And as Jesus is getting closer to uh, Galilee, he starts to get a lot more conflict coming his way. He starts to be a lot more direct with the religious leaders of the day. Uh, and this passage that we're looking at today, right before it, Jesus has had a particularly intense conflict. 
Uh, he has talked to the, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, and Jesus has uh, not really pulled any punches with them. He actually, he calls them fools. He says that they're unmarked graves. Uh, he calls them murderers and obstructors of justice. Can you imagine how they might respond to that? Didn't love that. The response in Luke 11, we, at the end of Luke 11, it says that they began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So long and short, Jesus has made some enemies right before this parable. He's made some enemies and they are out to get him. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a follower of Jesus at this time? To be one of his disciples? So his disciples had been called to come to him in this kind of dramatic fashion. Uh, they'd seen him do all sorts of miracles. Uh, they had seen him turn water into wine. Like they, they, They're like, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the one that everybody has been hoping for. I'm going to follow him and things are going to go well for me. And then Jesus starts leaning into conflict with the powerful people of the day. You got to imagine they're probably thinking something like, um, Jesus, maybe, uh, maybe you want to lay off on the people who have all the power. Might be a good idea. Maybe uh, why don't you go back to the like kind of love your enemies and turning water into wine thing. That's pretty dope. It gets the people going. Maybe you should stick with that. Actually, you know what? Maybe let's just put together our heads and you could do that whole thing where you like multiply the loaves and fishes and we could start a catering company. It'd be really great. You see, all of these people were starting, they, they were following Jesus and they're starting to see that that doesn't mean what they thought it would. They're starting to see that following Jesus is going to lead them into conflict a lot of times and not away from it. Following Jesus isn't always going to make them feel secure. So their security had been compromised, and you got to think they're thinking about how they might get it back. How could they maybe like put a Band-Aid over what Jesus did with the religious leaders? And so they're feeling insecure, and Jesus actually direct, he directs, like he talks about this with his disciples right before this passage. He says to them, hey, following me is going to cause you a lot of problems. In fact, the religious leaders are actually, they're going to prosecute you. Like they're going to bring you into court for following me. And he says, but have no fear, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to tell you what to say. So he's comforting his disciples in the midst of this new place that they're in. And then all of a sudden, there's an interruption. Some joker from the crowd, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, interrupts and asks Jesus a question. He asks Jesus a question about an inheritance. And in response to this man, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about the most secure man in the world, a rich man who had an abundant crop. This is a man who had both money and good luck. This is a man whose life was goals. But the story, it's more of a tragedy than it is a celebration of this man. So as we look at this story tonight, we're going to be looking at it in three points. First, we're going to look at the story itself, the struggle, and the solution. So the story, the struggle, and the solution. Let me pray for us real quick and we can get started. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would be with us uh, as we open your word, as we think about um, who you are and who we're called to be in response. Lord, I don't know where everyone is here tonight. Um, some of us may be very tired. Um, some of us may be um, not just tired, but exhausted. Um, some of us might be anxious or afraid. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us uh, wherever we are tonight. 
and that you would show us Jesus. Um, and in so doing, that you would change us. All these things I ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's, uh, let's dig in and look at this story. So we, I noted earlier, there's this man who approaches Jesus with a problem. In verse 13, he says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And then Jesus responds to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? So what this guy is doing, it, Jesus kind of responds in a way that shuts him down. But what he was doing, it was actually a pretty common practice at the time. Uh, if you had some sort of disagreement within your family or disagreement with a friend, it, it was common that you would bring that disagreement before a teacher who knew what they were talking about, and they would decide things for you. And Jesus, when this man does this, it's clear that he has no interest in doing that. But what he does have interest in is taking this, uh, this interaction with this man and turning it into a teaching moment. And it's a teaching moment for his disciples. We see at the beginning of verse 15, says, and he said to them. So he's not just responding to this man, he's actually responding to his disciples based on what this man has said. So what does he say to his disciples? He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is, he's teaching on the 10th commandment here. Do not covet. What does it mean to covet? The word here in the, in the original language, it actually means uh, much having, having a lot, desiring to have a lot. So he's saying, be on your guard against desiring to have a lot, for one's life doesn't consist in abundance. And it's a bit ironic that Jesus is talking to his disciples about this at this particular moment. Because as we just talked about, Jesus has just made himself public enemy number one with the powerful people. And then he takes this moment to sit down and talk to his disciples about the dangers of wealth. Like Jesus has just done away with any wealth they had. <laughs> Their social capital is gone. And Jesus takes this moment to talk to them about wealth. There's something ironic about that. And then Jesus goes into this story in, in verse 16. He said, it says, he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So the man in this story, he's described, I mean, very sparingly, but all we have is that he was a rich man. He was wealthy and he owned land. And if you remember, if you were here when we were talking about the prodigal son, uh, that would have been what wealth was at the time. It was having a lot of land and having a lot of crops. So this man is wealthy, but not only is he wealthy, He's lucky. We see that his land produced an abundant harvest. And it doesn't say that it was because he was a particularly great farmer. He didn't plan. He didn't get this like new, I don't know, tractor that might have helped him, which they wouldn't have had at the time, but whatever. He didn't, there was nothing that he did that made his land produce. It just happened. And then we see in verse 17 that he has a natural dilemma, right? He, his land produced a whole bunch he doesn't have anywhere to put it. And so he says to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And so it's a natural dilemma. And then he comes up with a solution in verses 18 and 19. It says here, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. All right, so this is not a bad solution, right? I mean, it's a natural dilemma. 
He has too much crops. What's he going to do with it? Well, he's going to tear down his barn and he's going to build a bigger one. And then problem solved. It's not a bad solution. We might expect Jesus, if he's just teaching on wealth and money, for, we might expect kind of an attaboy from Jesus. Like, wow, this guy's good. Like, he's been reading Dave Ramsey. Like, he knows what to do. But that's not what happens, actually. We see in verse 20 that Jesus ends this story by bringing God into the equation. And actually, I believe this is the only parable where God is a character. It's the only one where God comes into the equation. And so I think it means it's super important. It says in verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this man is a fool, according to the judgment of God. Why is this man a fool? I mean, to be fair, like from the story, it's like, I didn't really even know God was here. <laughs> like, I didn't know God was here. Why all of a sudden is God just coming in like guns blazing? Like you're a fool. It's a pretty tough judgment. He didn't even know that God was in the picture. But we can see kind of the reason why in verse 21. Jesus says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, the man is a fool because he made himself the center of the story. He didn't even consider anyone else. Uh, St. Augustine, who was an early church father, he said that uh, if the man would have taken a second to think, he would have had plenty spaces to store his extra grain in the mouths of all the poor people around him. He didn't even think about it. He made himself the center of the story to the exclusion of God. And if you look back at it, I mean, it's just like painfully obvious. This guy doesn't have many lines, but it's clear what his concern is. It says in verse 18, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You see, the problem is that he's so focused on himself. In just a couple lines, he mentions I at least six times. So the implication of the story is clear, right? Do not be like this rich fool. Great, all right, sermon over. Not so fast. Saying, Jesus is saying, do not lay up treasures for yourself without being rich towards God. This rich man was a fool because he sought security in accumulating wealth and not in God. So we see just kind of the basic te teaching here that wealth can give people a false assurance that they can control their future. It can give people a false sense of security. So think back to the context. Why is Jesus telling this story to his disciples, given where they are? They're not wealthy people with good luck. They probably couldn't identify with the rich man in the story at all. In fact, they were poor men who had given up everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus had just made some really powerful enemies. Like, I imagine what it was like to follow Jesus in this time is like kind of what it was like to be one of the commissioners of the Big Ten when Nebraska found out there wasn't football. Like, it was just like, get out of the way. There are some angry corn huskers coming at you. Like, that's what these people are experiencing right now. They're poor men, and they're, they're, they don't have any sort of security. Is Jesus simply giving them a moral lesson about finances, or like, what's going on here? I think what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out a universal human struggle. In telling his disciples this story, Jesus is pressing in on a struggle in the hearts of his disciples, and I believe in our hearts as well. The struggle is, it's namely this. We long for security, 
and we foolishly think that we can manufacture security on our own. Say that again. We long for security, and we foolishly think we can manufacture security on our own. What do I mean by that? First off, we long for security. So the man in this story, he would have been the very definition of security in his time. It was a man who had a whole lot of land, uh, a lucky man. Uh, he had an excess of crops. And not only that, he had the time and the manpower to build barns. Like it went from, oh man, I've got a problem. I should build a larger barn to like the next thing he's built a larger barn. Like it's a man who had the power to do exactly what he wanted. And in a time where most people struggle to put food on the table, Jesus tells a story with this man, a man who could afford to relax. You got to think the disciples, like when Jesus is telling this story, they're like, that is exactly what I need right now. If only I could be like that man. If only I could have that power. If only I could build those huge barns and then I would be okay and I wouldn't be suffering so much for following Jesus. If only I had the storehouses that this man had. So we long for security. We long to be like this man. But second, we foolishly think that we can manufacture security on our own. We take things into our own hands. You see, in telling this tragic story of how the most secure man in the world was a fool, Jesus is pointing out a tendency in our own hearts. He's pointing out that we're all a lot more like this rich fool than we care to admit even if we don't have a lot of money. You see, we're tempted to believe that something, anything, some, we could, if we just had something, then we would be secure. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe, it's, maybe it actually is more money. I mean, for a lot of us, that's pretty relevant right now. We want more money. Or maybe it's higher grades. Or maybe a, a better relationship. Maybe it's that, that person that you just think will complete you. And you think to yourself, if only I could have that, then I wouldn't be so insecure all the time. I wouldn't need anything. I'd be happy. And all of these are good things. Having a, a fulfilling relationship is a good thing. Having enough money is a good thing. Having good grades is a good thing. But what Jesus is saying here is that they can't give us what they promise. And some of you know this. Uh, you, you know this tendency. You get that high grade but then you have to get another one. You get that really great internship, but then you have to get another one next summer. Or this year you get that really great internship and COVID happens and it's canceled. We're so insecure. Nothing sticks around. I recently uh, came through, uh, came up upon this story from a guy named uh, Michael Norton. He is a uh, Harvard Business School professor. And he has a very like specific concentration. He studies the intersection of wealth and happiness. Wealth and happiness. And he just came out with this study uh, where he polled 2,000 people who have a network, net worth of at least 1 million. And most of them are above that. And he asked them basically two questions. He asked first, how happy are you on a scale of 1 to 10? And then they would answer. And then he would ask a follow-up question. And he said, how much more money would you need to get to a 10? You can imagine what the responses were. The responses basically every single person said they'd need two or three times as much money they had to be perfectly happy. It's not enough. 
No matter how much money they have, these people still feel insecure in the amount of wealth they have. And we hear these sorts of things a lot in the sports world. Uh, I recently came across a story about Kevin Durant in a book that I read. Um, Kevin Durant, if you don't know, really good basketball player. Didn't play this year. Um, he is one of the best scorers of all time. He's basically, he's, I think he's seven foot. He's close to it. But he has the ability to shoot like a guard. Uh, and he can play pretty much any position. Like one of the best scorers of all time. And not only this, he, he's a two-time NBA champion, a two-time finals MVP, a 10-time All-Star, and he is a lock-in future Hall of Famer. Like, no one questions that. In the 2019 season, uh, he was playing for the Golden State Warriors, fresh off of winning two, Nash or two NBA championships and then uh, getting two final MVPs. So he's, like, at his peak. And then all of a sudden, rumors start going around that he's going to be requesting a trade. And there was this local reporter um, who you know, covered the Golden State Warriors, and he was on this podcast that was hosted by a couple of fans. Like, it wasn't even that serious of a thing. Not many people listened to it. And they asked him on this podcast about these rumors that Kevin Durant was requesting a trade, that he wanted to get out of Golden State. Uh, and he, they asked him, and he was like, well, I think the reason is because he knows that he's always going to be second to Steph Curry in the Bay. And Steph Curry is another player on the team who's beloved by the fans there. And he just said that. It was just kind of a throwaway statement. Didn't think much of it. And then the next day, this guy, he, he's at their practice, Golden State Warriors practice. And he's just on his phone tweeting something. And then Kevin Durant starts to make like a beeline for him. It's like seven foot tall Kevin Durant is walking straight towards him. He's like, what's going on? And Kevin Durant comes up to him and just looks straight at him. And he says, have I been good to you? And the guy's like, uh, yes. I'm sorry, I don't, like, yeah, you're a good basketball player. I write about basketball players. So yeah, in that sense, I guess you've been good to me. And then Durant asks him, and he's like, no, have I been good to you? He's like, what is going on? And then Durant said, hey man, I read and listen to everything. And I heard that podcast. I heard what you said. I want you to know that. I listened to everything you said. This is like a local podcast that no one listens to. And Kevin Durant, like future Hall of Famer, is over here listening to it. What? And the same guy, Kevin Durant, he's known for actually creating burner accounts on Twitter to talk trash to like 15-year-olds that are saying stuff about him. Right? It doesn't shock us that the wealthiest people are so insecure because wealth can't deliver what it promises. But what about us? I mean, some of us are like, well, I'm not wealthy, so obviously I can't relate to this. But what do you do when you feel insecure? I mean, for me, this story of Kevin Durant is, is like very relatable. Maybe I don't have wealth. Maybe I don't have all of these accolades and think that I'm one of the best players in the league, but there are things that make me feel insecure like that. If I'm not doing a perfect job at my job, if I'm not like writing amazing sermons, if I'm not leading amazing Bible studies, I feel so weak and insecure. We're every bit as insecure as someone like this. So we long for security and we foolishly think that we can manufacture it on our own. Is there any hope? Or is Jesus just telling this story to crush us? To just tell us, like, listen, guys, this is what you do. There's no hope. 
Thankfully, that's not what he's doing. Thankfully, there is hope for rich fools like us. And the hope doesn't lie in us being able to just manufacture some form of security. It doesn't lie in us being able to just finally get everything together, to finally do a good job in everything that we're doing. No, it comes in the storyteller. It comes in Jesus. You see, in Jesus, we find a rich man who did something that many people would consider foolish. And that's our hope. What do I mean by that? 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says this. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, what we see here, Paul is saying that Jesus was the richest person to ever live. He had everything. He had a perfectly secure relationship with God from all eternity, living in this perfect relationship, fully known and fully loved. And he became man and entered into fractured relationships, entered into painful relationships. He became poor. He lived a life, a human life, and he died a death that he didn't deserve. Why did he do this? Paul tells us so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, Jesus is the rich man who gave up all his security so that we might be secure. And that doesn't just happen. Rich people don't give up their security for other people. What on earth could make Jesus do something like this? Uh, So on December 11th, 1936, King Edward VIII also did something that people considered to be foolish. And if you know something about King Edward VIII, you know where this is going. Uh, King Edward VIII was a recently uh, inaugurated, coronated, I don't know. He, He was a recent king. He had just become king. And then on December 11th, he abdicated the throne. He stepped down, and there was, it wasn't because of anything in particular that he wasn't fit to rule. He stepped down. All the power was gone. All the privilege was gone. His ties to his family severed. Why in the world would he do something like this? You see, the story goes that uh, King Edward was actually in love with a woman, a woman named Wallace Simpson. And Wallace Simpson was not exactly the type of person that... Uh, the English establishment wanted their king to be married to, suffice it to say. So Wallace Simpson, she had a couple strikes against her. First, and most importantly, she was an American. Gasp. Uh, Second, she was divorced multiple times. Um, And third, she was like in the tabloids in like the 30s. If you were in the tabloids in the 30s, that's pretty bad, right? If you're in the tabloids now, it's not a big deal. But then that was a big deal. And so the choice came down to either he could remain to be the king or he could get married to this woman that he loved. And what did he do? He abdicated the throne so that he could be with her. Uh, the show, the Netflix show, The Crown. Anybody watch The Crown? Like two, three people. Come on, y'all. It's a really good show. It's a really good show. You should watch it. Okay, in any case, I'll describe it for you. The Crown kind of captures this well. So Edward and Wallace, Edward has abdicated the throne. They're together having a watch party for the coronation of his niece, Elizabeth, you know, the one that's still queen somehow. I don't know how that's happening. Um, But Edward is hosting this coronation, and he's entertaining all his guests with this party, and he's kind of providing some off-the-cuff commentary on everything, um, and he's being, like, really sarcastic. Like, he's just trying to make it seem like he's over it, 
Like he's totally okay with the fact that his niece is now becoming the queen and that that was his role. He was going to be the king, not the queen, but you know, you get the point. But he keeps getting drawn in to the beauty of this coronation service over and over again. As much as he tries to be cynical about it, it, it just doesn't work. You can feel his longing for the crown. You can feel the weight of what he's given up to be with Wallace. And one of his guests says to him, you know, to think you turned all of this down. And Edward pauses, thinks about it for a second, collects himself. And then he turns to Wallace and says, I turned it down for something greater still. I turned it down for something greater still. You see, Edward counted a life with Wallace as more desirable than any sort of security and wealth that he had as the king of England. You see, love made Edward do what many considered to be a foolish thing. You see, this and more is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus counted us more significant than all the wealth and security that were rightly his as the perfect image of God. Jesus enjoyed a relationship with God that was perfectly secure, yet he willingly entered into our insecure reality. He suffered. He lived a perfect life, and he was hated for it. And he died a death of a criminal. Why would he do this? See, Jesus did this because he wanted something greater still. He wanted us. He did this for us. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they restore us to a place of absolute security before God. You believe that? That because of Jesus, you can live in a place of absolute security. I know I often don't live that way. Most of the time, when when something bad happens, I'm completely wrecked by it, right? When I can't perform the way that I feel like I should, I get completely wrecked by it. But what we see here is that Jesus has given us complete and absolute security. When God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We have the same relationship that Jesus has with God. It's given to us in him. In Jesus, we are completely safe. We have lasting security. Let's pray. Father, we thank you Um, for the security that you have provided for us in Jesus. We thank you that uh, you didn't leave us to try to manufacture some form of security. You didn't want us to live in such a way that we were constantly anxious about where we stand. No, you have provided for us. I pray, Lord, that you would um, just be beautiful to us. Lord, that your great provision Uh, in Jesus would be so appealing. I I pray that people would wrestle with who you are and with the ways that you have provided for us. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in a practice of singing the doxology after uh, we preach. This is a kind of an ancient Christian practice of whenever we receive God's word, we respond and pray. So I'll start off and you guys can join in with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all.